Hello everyone, it's September 22nd, 2020. It's been a cool week in spaceflight. Nanorack's Bishop module is coming along nicely, and Dynetics is making real progress with their lunar lander. Two big items and good news on both. I like when that happens. Well, let's get to it, and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 277 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. Dennis, do you want to talk about phosphine? I think this is... Yeah, let's uh, chat about this because this is right yeah, I mean, the this, big news. <laughs> yeah, I think I think maybe it was out before we recorded last week, maybe, and I, and I was maybe going to bring it up. I can't actually I don't, remember. I don't think so. I think... So, so the original paper was actually uh, leaked a little. Or they ac- somebody accidentally broke. What's it called? Embargo. Embargo. Yeah, somebody accidentally broke embargo and published it for a second, then took it down like five minutes later. But mm-hmm. it, I'm pretty like that formed a pretty sharp memory in my mind, and I'm pretty sure it was after we recorded the last show. Okay. Yeah, it could have been. Yeah, it seems like it was like right around then and because I remember saying to myself, oh, we could have, you know, <laughs> talked about that, but maybe it was a day later. No, I think I think it was leaking over the weekend mm-hmm. and then on Monday it was officially announced. And so we okay. yeah. recorded 24 hours before, but we still actually knew about it. So anyway, I guess for anyone who doesn't know, which I'm sure they all do, phosphine has been detected on like Venus and apparently that is a sign potentially for life. But uh, I think you have some more to say about that, Dennis. Yeah, sure. And Ben... Um, <laughs> we can have a back and forth about this if you want, but, uh, <laughs> so yeah, so, so the idea is, right, phosphine is a phosphorus and, uh, uh, some hydrogens attached to it. It's, it's, it's methane, but with phosphorus. Exactly. Yeah. And that's why it's got that name. So yeah. So instead of methane, there's phosphine. Yeah, the um, there's yep. ger- germane is if it's a germanium with a bunch of hydrogens attached to it. Silane is silicon with those four hydrogens. I think it's also very closely related to ammonia, right? It's just, uh, from what I had seen in the video, it's just one element. Like if you go up in the periodic table one, you'll see how it's the same thing with the... Uh, yeah, ammonia is NH3, exactly. and this is... Yeah. Yeah, pH3. P- pH3, pH yeah. yeah. So it's actually kind of funny. So people had spec- evidently speculated about how this you know, could be a potential biosignature on terrestrial planets. And the reason for that, I guess this might be jumping ahead a little bit, but the reason for that is that they split kind of planetary atmospheres into oxidizing versus reducing environments, which is just, I, as a non-chemist, kind of my way of interpreting that is just whether or not you have a lot of hydrogens around, a lot of hydrogen-bearing species, or you have more oxygens around. And so when you Think about the giant planets, right? They're all mostly hydrogen. Uh, even the ice giants are mostly hydrogen. And, you know, they have a lot of hydrogen-bearing species like uh, methane is responsible kind of famously for the colors of Uranus and Neptune. And so the phosphine that we see there, they, you know, think it makes semi-sense. You know, you can form it in this hydrogen-rich reducing environment uh, deep in the atmosphere at high pressures and temperatures, and then it somehow works its way up to the atmosphere that we, you know, the parts, of, the outer parts of the atmosphere that we can see, and how it survives that is is the big mystery. But on a, you know, uh, a Mars, you shouldn't see, you know, something like methane, which is a reducing kind of gas. It's got hydrogens, right, carbon hydrogens, but we do, and that's why that's, you know, possibly a biosignature there. And so people have talked about how on Venus you could, maybe if you saw phosphine. Maybe that's, you know, a biosignature. And so apparently in 2017, uh, they used, you know, one of these radio telescopes on Hawaii to basically their plan was to just put an upper limit on, you know, they, they figured they're not going to detect anything, but then they could rule out certain scenarios of, you know, life in the clouds of Venus. And instead they get kind of a marginal detection. And this is like th- over three years ago when this happened. <laughs> and so they're like, what the whole oh, crap? 
because the fact that it's marginal too, I mean, they must have been, you know, anxious as hell, just kind of like wanting to know more, you know, desire to know more intensifies. And so, um, they go and, uh, get time on Alma, which is the, you know, creme de la creme, you know, radio array in Chile. And they basically get kind of a whopping detection uh, of it at that same transition, that same wavelength. Or I guess in radio, you talk more about frequency space. So that's kind of the first. So, I mean, that's right. The shortcut is to say, oh, they've detected phosphine in the clouds of Venus. And then people go and report it or at least interpret the reports as, oh, they discovered life on Venus. But of course, there's <laughs> issues with that. Uh, one of the things is whether or not the detection is legit is something to keep in mind because it's just a single line. So you don't necessarily know if it's at, you know, the frequency and Doppler shift you think it is. Maybe it's a different line that's been Doppler shifted into where, you know, you think your phosphine would be. And they argue that there's no other plausible lines. The only other one it could be wouldn't quite fit. But given the kind of attention this is getting, they really, I have to imagine, are going to be trying, somebody's going to be trying to get other transitions of phosphine detected on Venus ASAP. Um, mm -hmm. So you could really secure that you know it is, in fact, uh, phosphine. But it probably is. I'm mean, just based on mm -hmm. what I'd seen, it, 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 it very likely is. Um, they did a lot of techniques. I mean, if you actually read the Greaves paper, it's not that long and it's open access in nature uh, astrophysics. Or nature astronomy. And, and this is how a lot of science papers are that people that don't read science don't necessarily notice is it's, it's basically 70% of the paper is just ruling out, you know, what they could have done wrong and why they don't think that they did it wrong. You know what I mean? <laughs> mm. And, uh, mm -hmm. and so that, that's what a lot of it, most of it is about the actual signal that they detect itself. Yeah. And so then the question becomes, you know, and this is where I think you and Ben, Ben and I share skepticism. I don't know how you feel about this, David, but, um, they, then have to basically argue that there's no other abiotic pathway to generating that level of phosphine in the atmosphere. And they basically look at kind of every known chemical pathway that they could think of taking place in the atmosphere just by reacting with other things in the atmosphere, by interacting with light, you know, uh, photochemistry that's happening, and then whether or not you're getting it from volcanic activity, whether or not you're getting it from meteorite, uh, meteoritic activity, meteorites coming in there. And they basically, um, there's a long paper, it's like 100 pages, I absolutely have not read this one. <laughs> uh, but this one is basically the title is, you know, ruling out any uh, known sources of phosphine in Venus's atmosphere or something like that. And so the implication that is certainly not stated in the uh, papers, but if you listen to the authors talk to you know journalists, is that they think that this is in fact due to life on Venus. And um, and one of the co-authors, Sarah Seeger, has one of the best papers, coolest papers I've ever read uh, earlier this year, which is all about how that life cycle could have worked. Because that's always such a weird thing. This would be life suspended in clouds. Yeah. Like always. That is pretty, you know? Yeah, that's pretty. But yeah, I mean, I would say that I share your skepticism just because uh, this is, you know, the quintessential extraordinary claim that requires extraordinary evidence. And, you know, this paper, for example, that you're talking about, it doesn't give any like evidence at all for life. It, it just says that it can't be these exactly. other things. But yeah. there are other things that we don't know that it might be. So, I mean, we're a long way from saying it's life because in order to say that you have to find life and mm. life has not been found. And, so, yeah. And I think it's important to point out that the authors aren't saying we found life. Um, it's bad science reporting that's saying that. And the authors yeah. <laughs> are, are very clear 
this isn't evidence of life, but we don't know what else could do this. And I saw an interview, and I, I think this is what you were referring to, Dennis, where one of the authors mm-hmm. said, we don't know any other way of making this, but if you know, like if you know of a better <laughs> way to do it, tell us so that so that we can you know include that yeah. as a possibility and dennis you you found a really interesting paper that doesn't exactly point out a mechanism but does point out that phosphine is is produced on uh, jupiter and saturn right it, it's from a textbook actually but yeah mm. that's been basically well established and so that was that that was my first thing i was thinking is you know well I literally just read about this, you know, a month before this news broke. And mm. so phosphine, because I'd never heard of that molecule before. And so, um, but apparently the big argument is about in a reducing atmosphere like the giant planets, uh, it's not unexpected to have phosphine created. It might be a little unexpected to have it survive so long that, you know, it can exist in detectable quantities, you know, in the upper atmospheres of these worlds. But uh, apparently, yeah, I mean, it's kind of a, a, a very different story on a, a typically oxidized atmosphere of, you know, I a see. planet like Venus yeah. or Mars or Earth. And so on Earth, the only known way of making it in significant quantities is biologically. So it's it's specifically because Venus has an oxidizing atmosphere that we would expect less of it, or we, we would expect it to disappear due to ultraviolet, but we wouldn't expect it to be created at all on Venus we don't expect it to stick around for long on Jupiter, but there is a good mechanism for creating it because it's a reducing atmosphere. That's yeah, that's my understanding. And (laughs) like you were bringing up David. So yeah. So, so yeah, the reason I say I'm skeptical, even though I'm, I'm, I'm so happy that there, you know, this is obviously, obviously something that should have been reported. You know what I mean? This is good science. This is well done. They did a really careful job. Didn't rush it to publication. Didn't rush it. No, they've, yeah, they've got all these kind of uh, other papers that are not, I don't think, officially companion pieces, but, you know, they might as well be, you know. And so um, they, they, they've been very careful about it. But if there's one thing I know, and this happens in cosmology all the time, is that I, my expectation is that every week for the next and many years, we're going to have a paper appearing that's going to be talking about a new abiotic way to generate phosphine in significant quantities on Venus. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? People are going to somehow yeah. come, like, if it's anything like cosmology, where at I think there you have a little more wiggle room because you can change the laws of physics themselves. But (laughs) uh, as far as chemistry seems very complicated. And so uh, I think that when they say that there's no known pathways, that known is kind of the key uh, uh, word in there. It's not that there are necessarily no pathways, abiotic pathways that can create phosphine under those conditions, but there's just no known ones. And I mean, that's good. I mean, you can't report on unknown unknowns. You know what I mean? Like you gotta, (laughs) this is science doing what it can, the best way it can. So either way, we'll have a discovery. It just might not be life, but you know, it'll be some new known Mm -hmm. pathway to the production of phosphine in quantities. We're we're probably going to see something analogous to methane on Mars. You know what I mean? There's going to be decades from now, there's going to be another suggestive thing in this direction and less suggestive things in that direction and it's just going to be the long slow slog through scientific uh inquiry and discovery i don't know (laughs) Mm -hmm. well we've we've got more about venus coming up later in the show so i think it yeah yeah. it it feels really good to be focused on venus like i kind of feel like you know it's a when it rains it pours kind of situation kind of like when you buy a new car you know suddenly you see that car all over the road you know Mm. it's just 
it, it, you know, it's just a form of recognition bias, but it, it's really cool that, you know, we talked to Peter Beck about going to Mars and now we see a bunch of stuff about Mars in the news. And it makes me really happy because about going Mars, to Venus, you mean, right? Oh, so, so, <laughs> yeah. Venus, right. <laughs> but I mean, Venus is, is such a, a rich place for knowledge that has mm. been relatively unexplored, just like, you know, the bottoms of the earth's oceans. It's, you know, it's this really cool place that we don't know a lot about. And it it's exciting that, you know, while we're not landing the first rovers on Mars anymore, we can, you know, we have yet to put a rover on Venus. And it's just yeah. it's very exciting. And, and it makes me feel good to see humanity moving in that direction now. So uh, let's talk about NanoRacks. They have a really cool a module slash airlock called uh, the Bishop Airlock, which uh, is nearly complete. And I don't think we've given this much attention, if any at all. I Again, I always forget. Yeah, no, no, we've definitely mm. talked about it in the past, but it was so early on. Like, I think we mm. talked about it around the time that, um, that Bigelow put their expandable module, uh, put Beam up there. Um, and so now we, now we get to talk about it more and I'm so excited. <laughs> yeah. It's a really cool concept. Nothing like this has been done before because it's, mm -hmm. I forget what they call it, but it's kind of like a, just a little like cup, like, you know, a little airlock cup that you can, you know, pressurize. I, I, I've been calling it a nub in my head, you know, nub, it's just a little, yeah. little nub cap. So the initial plan was to launch this in 2019, but that didn't happen, which, you know, um, is not unexpected. Yeah. So this was conceived to actually take care of what they're calling the bottleneck issue, which is because NanoRacks obviously does, you know, a lot of experiments on station and they need to use the gem airlock, but you can only get so much usage of that. And so how do you fix that problem? Well, this is how they're going to do it. They're just going to mm. pretty much build their own and it mm. has some other features as well. You know, so I guess the idea is that it's, it's going to be, you know, a significantly larger volume. It's kind of mm -hmm. one of their, you know, key things that they want to, that they're striving for. I guess that's what the, uh, the, the need they felt this was and so um yeah the idea is to uh ship ship to florida later this month that's like you know as far as the recent news that's what's going on mm -hmm. here is that you know there's some updates on it and so they're kind of aiming for a uh spacex launch in november and so it's pretty exciting i mean there's going to be a lot of work you know installing it and, you know checking the pressurization for leaks and all that stuff but uh you know it's 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 happening it's you know <laughs> it's almost underway and so um right now the gem i, I kind of want to talk a little bit about the the way that we use the gem airlock is, I mean, it's yeah. just so cool. It's, it's, it's like that. Um, I, I should never make uh, references on the show, but I'm still going to do it cause I'm an idiot. But, um, like that, uh, uh, whoever that guy was that used to talk about how, you know, the joke was, Hey, here you like rims. So I put rims on your rims or something like that, you know? <laughs> right. Uh, and so it's, uh, <laughs> what, oh, geez. Uh, is it exhibit? It wasn't exhibit. Um, exhibit. There you go. Yeah. On uh pimp my ride. Yeah. Pimp my ride. Okay. Yeah. Way back in the day. Yeah. 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 And so, you know, the idea is, right, like, you know, I hear you like airlocks. So let's put an airlock in your module. And so, I don't know, that's a terrible yeah. joke. <laughs> no, no, no. I, yeah. I, I like where you were going with that, but it did definitely fall apart at the end there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. But yeah, no, right? I mean, you, you know, you, you basically go into the Kibo module. You, you load up within the smaller airlock that lies, you know, partially within the module. You put it on the slide table, you close it, you depressurize, you open the outer part, and then you slide it out to the kind of external, uh, the exposed platform outside there. And so, but, you know, it's kind of a, like you say, a bottleneck. You can only get about 10 uses per year, and the volume is much less than what, you know, NanoRacks' uh, Bishop uh, will be capable of. And then, um, 
so the idea is for uh, for Bishop to go onto Tranquility or Node Three, um, which is the node. Uh, so I always think of it in terms of Node One is you know at the heart right of the station. It's where the Russian orbital segment is meeting you know the uh, American uh, segment, and so this is the um, the node that sticks out port side from Node One, and so it's got the cupola on one end right the nadir side. And so um this one is gonna they're gonna go and stick it onto there, right? Looking like a little little nub, a little cap essentially, right? And so the idea, you know, you can go and install, you know, your CubeSats or uh, you know, a entire CubeSat dispenser <laughs> and um uh, I guess depressurize it, uh have the arm go and pull off Bishop aim it in the appropriate direction, you know, under the appropriate conditions, and then deploy your satellites and whatnot, and then uh, reattach it there. And so, um, you know, they designed it apparently for 10 pressure cycles over 10 years, but uh, they argue they could do probably over 100 cycles, you know, during the lifetime of it. You know, they, that's not uncommon, right, in spaceflight to have things that last well long beyond what you your nominal design life is. Some of the features here. Uh, so yeah, this is a four cubic meter canister. I don't know if it's four cubic meters inside or if that's measuring from the outside, but you know, you get the idea. It's it's much, much larger. <laughs> and it has a micrometeoroid in orbital debris shield, which covers the PCBM, which is uh, the passive common berthing mechanism. So it kind of looks like a little lip that extends out from the cylinder. Um, and that's just a shield, you know, that mechanism, since that's mm -hmm. probably the most fragile part of the entire spacecraft. If I can interject, I found a, a bullet uh, in some documentation. It increases the uh, payload deployment volume by five times over Jackson oh, wow. Kilo okay. module. So yeah. that's, that's a big factor that becomes, yeah. right? <laughs> big difference there. And it has, so this module has at least one, and I couldn't confirm it, it has at least one PVGF, and that is the upgraded powered video grapple fixture, which, you know, provides power and it's something that can actually operate the arm um, or like you can operate the arm from it. And it also has video capabilities. And now it has another grapple fixture. I'm not sure about that one, but it says that it has one PVGF. I don't know if the other one is just, you know, a little dummy fixture, which I'm assuming that it is. They call it a secondary one. I don't know if that means it's just a backup. So could there be orientation reasons why you would want it potentially on the secondary one? Yeah, I mean, that's like the obvious answer and I'm and probably, but I mean, I'm I'm just wondering why the one fixture has the upgraded version, the PVGF, the power the power video grapple fixture. Wouldn't you want to have data if you were uh, deploying CubeSats. Okay, I th because I was thinking that that point was used as like an anchor point for the arm, but actually it's to receive the video from that end, right? Yeah. Do I have that right? No, mm. I, I'm, pre I'm pretty sure you're correct, yeah. Because I was thinking of just it being used as like an anchor for the arm, because you know how the arm can kind of do a little inchworm thing. And so mm. you would have the free end just doing something else, but I don't know what. But instead you would have the anchored part still on station, and then it would attach, you know, its end effector to the PVGF and since that has video capability you're saying that's what the use would be because you would want to have that and it can transmit power as well yeah I don't I don't think you would ever want to have the arm only attached to the what's it called Bishop right is that is that what you're talking about like right Bishop. yeah yeah I don't I, I think that there are structural issues with that and maybe even power supply issues I don't know if I don't know if Bishop has the the power hookups that they would need mm -hmm. to actually have. Cause the idea is, you know, Bishop comes off, 
and then Bishop can get its power through the arm. And I don't know if they have it set up to actually power the arm through Bishop, even when it, you know, when it's docked, obviously. Right. And that was a misunderstanding that I had because what you're describing makes sense. But I was thinking that you could use it as, you know, like an anchor point, but I didn't understand why that would be. But I didn't think that yeah. maybe, you know, that they were mm-hmm. using it to actually transmit power to Bishop, not, yeah. you know, from it, because that doesn't make sense. Yeah, I don't, I don't believe that that would be something that they would really want to do. All right. Yeah. Um, so where is, I, I can't remember, we, we discussed it before, where is the video feed coming from since this is a, you know, a video grapple fixture? Like, how does that work? I mean, it's kind of like a USB port. Data goes both ways. You know, there, there are lots of, you know, quote unquote, dumb grapple fixtures that mm-hmm. um, can't be used as base stations for the arm, but are, you know, a place where you can grab the, grab a module and move it around. And, and so if you, if you were to grapple Bishop without um, data and power, that'd be fine. It's just that Bishop's going to be cold and Bishop's not going to have any data, you know, any capability to send data home. And so that's, you know, that makes sense if you're doing like a long-term uh, environment exposure kind of experiment. But for most of the things that they're going to want to do where, you know, maybe I, I'm sure there are cameras inside a Bishop. I don't know that for sure, but like mm-hmm. I, I would be shocked if they didn't put them in. Um, and if, you know, if you're deploying spacecraft, then you're going to also have, you know, the ability to command spacecraft release and that kind of thing. So, right. Which it does have that capability because, uh, you could release CubeSats. So yeah. Could you imagine if they just had an egg timer where like you put the CubeSats <laughs> in, you set the egg timer for three hours, close the hatch and then move the arm to the right <laughs> position. Yeah. I mean, you could do that. That sounds like, you know, the way that back in the day, the way that the Soviets would have done it, you know, <laughs> then they have effective. An, an anomaly in the arm is stuck halfway and it's oh, yeah, pointed somewhere in the station. <laughs> yeah. Somebody gets smacked in the forehead. Yeah. <laughs> so it, yeah, this also has a Wi-Fi antenna, which goes back to the idea of it having power. Um, and it has a hay bale CubeSat dispenser. So this is like, um, I guess like right in the center of the little dome towards the back of the inside of the module, there's a CubeSat dispenser. It looks a lot like I think ones that they've used previously, I believe. It's just that this one is mounted inside Bishop and, uh, yeah, mm. that could push off the CubeSat bundle and then from there, they can separate and do whatever they're going to do. Yeah, it looks like the, the hay bale's got 144U capacity. Yeah, in. that's that's definitely a bale of <laughs> that's insane. cubesets. It's just insane. I mean, technically it should be U-cubed, right? But I know how to <laughs> use units in. <laughs> yeah. so, so that's, you know, the latest on NanoRacks. Um, you know, we should be seeing Bishop on station, hopefully, you know, in the coming months. And uh, in the meantime, they're looking to raise $20 million dollars in new funding so good luck to them you know given how well things are going i hope uh yeah i'm sure they will be able to raise that money no problem all right let's translate then on over to dynetics and their human lander system mock-up which has arrived at jsc it may have some other news too uh so yeah i think we had discussed this a couple months ago that they were working on the details of how the interior of the spacecraft will work um, as far as like ergonomics and you know just uh the technical needs that they might have inside mm. there yeah so i think this is is really fascinating because um, we talked about the national team delivering their mock-up to JSC almost exactly a month ago. I mean, it it was a month ago Mm -hmm. when we're recording this uh, on August 20th. 
well, we're recording this on September 20th. They delivered it on August 20th. Um, it wasn't quite a full week from Dynetics delivering their HLS, but the, the national team video was very sleek and, you know, was very high production values, but it didn't tell you anything. And it was really frustrating that it was just like, okay, all right, we get that it's Blue Origin, but just come on, give us something. And then Dynetics mm-hmm. turns around and they've got this wonderful video which has um, different members from the team you know reading off a of cue cards like actually presenting info but also walking around the inside um, and showing off what it's like to actually interact with these things um, hmm. and it's oh it's so good it's so 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 good uh, somebody um, when I looked at the original Dynetics tweet um, up at the top Twitter the Twitter algorithm had decided to move um, a, a reply tweet pretty high up in the thread and it was somebody going oh this is this is such a horrible video don't you know that there are so many people on youtube who love space and you should have hired one of them to do this and they'd be so happy and why do you get why are you doing so you know why are you hurting us and it's just like oh my gosh you need to chill because this video is fantastic (laughs) just because it doesn't look like a tim dodd video doesn't mean it's low production value they worked really hard on this but uh the the really cool thing that they got to show off. Um, and I, I'm all but certain that the national team HLS mock-up has this as well. Um, but they have volumetric mock-ups of, you know, displays and controls and storage and all, all these other components that are going to intrude in, <laughs> intrude, intrude in the, in the, mm-hmm. the crew volume, um, things that have to be inside the pressure vessel. And they're all, magnetic so the inside of the of the crew module is made of steel uh you know painted and then you've got these modules that have magnets on the back and so you can literally you know grab hand uh, hand control display and move it somewhere else and it's all Mm -hmm. volumetric so it you know it shows the amount of room that it's going to take up but you know nothing actually works it's all you know basically uh fancy paper craft um, you know, they don't have, uh, uh, any actual displays, but that's not the point. The point is to figure out where you're going to put these things, how you're going to work with the people. Um, and it, it's so cool to get to see people walk in there and go, yeah, I can just pull this off the wall, pop, and I can put it back over here. <laughs> thunk. And it, it, it's so satisfying to, you know, this is a, this is a common way to figure out human interfaces, especially in space where you have very demanding, you know, small constraints kind of environments. Uh, you really have to get it right the first time. Um, so, you know, it's nothing shocking here, but it's really great to see it and to see people who actually work on the team getting to show it off. I, I really can't encourage you to go watch that video enough. So, uh, one of the shots, one of the, the, uh, CG shots in the video kind of looks like something that Andrew Zandanowitz had. We, we kind of talked to him a little bit about, um, back when the original three company contracts were, uh, handed out the idea of uh, almost using the Dynamics HLS as a sky crane where the crew module is this soda can sitting horizontally underneath a truss that connects to the uh, to the thrusters on either side. And in the video, you actually see uh, a shot with the crew canister on wheels driving around the moon um, and the the propulsion element 
from the lander sitting there on the surface with nothing in the middle. Um, and so it, it, it doesn't quite line up with the idea of using it as a sky crane. Um, but it, it does, you know, suggest that, yeah, we could put different things here in the middle um, and use this as a more general purpose kind of vehicle. And I, I think it's really cool. And I, I appreciate Andrew reaching out and speculating and, and discussing this with us because it's, it's a lot of fun. So the other half of the Dynetics news this week is what the actual profile for getting uh, HLS to the moon is going to look like for Dynetics. And what's really cool is they are going to have, they, they have to do refueling. And remember the HLS system has got additional fuel pods uh, on the left and right, the port and starboard sides that actually detach um, during descent. Very Kerbal. I mean, it's it's really cool. Mm. Um, but to actually get the thing to the moon in the first place, you have to refuel in space. And so right now they're looking at launching um, the HLS in three in a single launch on top of Vulcan Centaur and then doing two additional Vulcan Centaur launches to refuel it. And what's really fantastic is they're not using Vulcan Centaur to fly another vehicle that can then dock and refuel. Instead, Centaur itself uh, will be launched with nothing on top of it and Centaur itself will be donating the fuel. Um, they'll actually mm. be pulling fuel out of the out of the upper stage to to refuel uh, HLS. And what, what's really crazy is ULA is on board with this. Um, Mark Peller, the uh, vice president of ULA, said, "Quote: We're all set up and preparing the launch system to support uh, that cadence out of the Cape and on track to do that." And by cadence, he's talking about doing multiple launches in in short proximity. But it also sounds like they're happy to use Centaur. To refuel, <laughs> mm. to refuel HLS in orbit, which is so cool. And so, yeah, this, this cadence is really tight. Um, and that's why the VP of ULA is like, oh, yeah, we can do that. Instead mm. of everybody just assuming that it's the case, they're looking at 14 to 20 day centers uh, for launch windows. So I believe that's the center of the launch window. Um, all three of them have to be within 14 to 20 days, just because, you know, it's cryogenic propellants and you, you have limited mm -hmm. lifespans. So you guys remind me, uh, HLS is always going to dock with uh, with gateway before it lands, right? So the loiter time on the two week loiter time on orbit to get refueled is not with people on board, right? No people are going to go to the moon in HLS. Yeah. They're not like, there's not going to be people on an HLS that's getting yeah. launched, right? I mean, that's yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So correct. We're, we're yeah. talking about it there. <laughs> Right. I mean, it's a, it's a small vehicle, but I'm assuming it's more roomy than Orion is. But I mean, imagine like HLS on orbit. It's, it's a crude vehicle. It's on orbit for two weeks and there's nobody inside of it. And it's doing rendezvous and docking operations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's pretty oh. ambitious, huh? Oh, yeah. it makes me excited. I see what you're getting at. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and ambitious is the right word, David. Um, right now, I don't know what the TRL, the technology readiness level is, but it's not 10. And so, uh, um, Dynetics specifically said that they are going from laboratory to TRL 10 
in a few years. Yeah. Um, we'll we'll see that the in-flight refueling is is the big deal here, and I I don't know what that's that's going to look like. We we just we don't mm-hmm. have the real world experience right now. Um, we've got all the theory. We've done automated rendezvous and docking, and and that's great. But we've never actually done on-orbit cryogenic refueling. Um, we've never done rendezvous and docking remotely in in this sort of way i mean if it feels different to me than just um docking a progress with a uncrewed salute right oh mm-hmm. um, I, I don't i don't know um we'll we'll see it's something that spacex wants to do too and you know we've all seen the discussion of how they're going to do that so how are they going to do this because how do you i mean yeah the actual mechanics of transferring the fuel and this is liquid hydrogen so it's tricky. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I mean, you're using mm-hmm. this super cold cryogenic fuel and you're having to get it from one vehicle to another. Which, I mean, I think it is a good idea that they're just using the Vulcan scent or that they're just using the Centaur upper stage because that's one less thing that you have to, you yeah. know, design from the mm-hmm. ground up. Well, and, and what a what a feather in ULA's cap, right? When they can mm-hmm. say, hey, we got Vulcan Centaur. Not only can it launch, you know, a huge amounts of cargo, um, you know, it's one of the heaviest lift vehicles. It's if it was around today, it would be the heaviest lift vehicle in operation. Because I I made a mistake last week and I said that it lift it, its uh, capabilities were slightly under Delta Four heavy, but I actually was reading up today and I believe it's actually bigger than Delta Four heavy by just a little bit. But I mean, you know, not only can they say we've got the heaviest lift vehicle in operation, but oh, also by the way, we can do cryogenic and orbit refueling. You know, if you want it, it's there. Um, <laughs> that's, that's really exciting. And, and, you know, um, I, I love SpaceX. I love, um, super heavy and starship. I think that's fantastic, but what they're doing feels a little farther in the future. Um, than what Dynetics is proposing. Maybe that's, you know, some sort of bias coming out of my head, but it, it just, it, this feels more real than, than Starship to me. Oh, um, I agree a hundred percent on that. Oh yeah. It definitely feels more. Yeah. Uh, so do you think that the, like the modifications that they'll have to make to the Centaur, is that just going to be some kind of a, you know, fuel transfer interface or can they expand it? Just give it a little bit more volume because I mean, either way, they're going to have some leftover fuel because they don't have anything that they're carrying, um, you know, besides centaur itself i mean I, I would assume that they would put a regular fairing on top and just have it be mostly empty and on top would be a docking interface um, right. but you know who knows they they may have to add if the centaur is going to cooperatively dock instead of just holding an attitude um, you know the the centaur may need better vision systems it may need radar systems it may need you know all these other things and and who knows what that's going to look like it's it's super exciting to to you know be finding out hopefully in the next couple of years yeah but i think that the cool thing i guess is just that it's so much the right choice just because if you had something else that you were carrying like you said which would then do the transfer that's more of a mass penalty you know because you're having to carry something else that's not fuel but this is the centaur which is obviously not fuel but i mean you're going to need either way so why not just have that deliver the fuel you know what i mean like it actually makes sense Mm -hmm. to me yeah i agree yeah sure Okay, just back to three normal short and sweets. What's the first one, Dennis? First up, Russia announces solo mission to Venus. At the Hell Russia 
2020 conference last week, Roscosmos director Dmitry Rogozin announced plans for the Russian space program to send its own independent spacecraft to Venus. The Soviet program has sent the most direct missions to the planet, mostly in the 1970s and 80s, and Roscosmos is currently collaborating with the United States on a joint mission called Venera D that will launch in 2026 or 2031. Venera D includes a lander that will return samples by deploying a raccoon or rocket balloon after collection. While details on the solo Russian mission are scarce, interest in Venus has spiked after the recent announcement of a potential biosignature in its atmosphere. Uh, next up, China preps for Chang'e 5 launch. CSNA has initiated preparations for the first lunar sample return mission in over 40 years. By tracking cargo ships carrying components of the mission's Long March 5 rocket, observers are estimating the launch is likely in the last 10 days of November. Chang'e 5, a complex mission involving four spacecraft, is targeting a volcanic formation in Oceanus Procellarum, which was visited by Apollo 12 and is also targeted by Intuitive Machines' CLIPS mission. There, the spacecraft will collect two kilograms of lunar rock before an ascent vehicle and ultimately a return module will land the sample capsule in Inner Mongolia. And then next up, Artemis 3's landing site. While the recommendation for the Artemis program's first human landing site on the moon has been the South Pole, recent comments by Jim Bridenstine suggested that an equatorial site for the historic mission is possible. Asked about ultimately returning to an Apollo site, the NASA administrator replied that if the South Pole were too difficult to reach, an Apollo site might be an alternative to Artemis 3. Bridenstine emphasized that no decision has been made, and Human Exploration and Operations head Kathy Loiters confirmed that NASA is still looking into the landing site selection process. Questions, comments, and correction burns. And we have a couple things from Ben Hallert and Andrew Zandanowitz. Two two correction burns from Ben. I said, in passing, I said, Falcon Heavy has launched, what, two times? And he goes, no, it's three. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I got to learn never to say anything in passing on this show because nine out of ten times I'm wrong. Uh, And then uh, this this is more substantive. And I, I... Really, really appreciate this correction because this wasn't said in passing. This was like, I, I totally had this wrong. So we were talking about uh, Vulcan Centaur Heavy. Here's the thing. Uh, I, I said that Vulcan Heavy has is the version with six um, solid boosters. No, incorrect. Any Vulcan configuration can have up to six SRMs. It's Centaur that is is the heavy thing. So I, I don't think that they're calling it Vulcan heavy. I think they're calling it Vulcan centaur heavy as in Vulcan hyphen centaur heavy. So mm. the difference here is that normal cent the normal version of centaur that's flying on a Vulcan uh, has two RL 10 C engines. The, um, the heavy version of centaur is going to have two RL 10 C X uh, engines. Those have bigger nozzles um, than the 10 Cs. And also the Centaur gets stretched tanks in the heavy configuration. Um, so that that's a that's a big difference. And I, I think that using the heavy version of Centaur gets this up above Delta IV Heavy's mass capabilities. Um, I, and I think that's what what I the the numbers that I had wrong there. 
Um, and then also, um, this isn't a correction, but it's just a comment from Andrews and Danowitz. As always, uh, fantastic emails we get from this guy every week. Um, and this didn't really fit anywhere else, but I thought it was a really good read and I thought it was worth pointing out. So it's, it's an article in Aviation Week that's about Boeing. And I'll, I'll just... Um, quote Andrew here. He says, uh, Starliner didn't have problems because of the Starliner team. Starliner had problems because those people were operating using the Boeing business model, which is kind of scary. So um, Boeing has had a lot of issues recently. Um, and so this Aviation Week article is mostly talking about their a- the aviation side of their business and what the heck has been going wrong. And uh, I think Andrew's right to to draw a parallel between the aviation side and the, the, the space flight side uh, of Boeing. And it's, it's really depressing because Boeing has been such a staple of the industry. And now it looks like they're really uh, just falling apart in their qualities um, going down the mm. tube. So do uh, go read this article if you have a moment, because I, I didn't read all of it. I, I read a couple of different paragraphs from it. I think I read about 50% of the article and uh, it, it was very interesting what I did read. Cool. So let's press on then to this week in spaceflight history. We have three winners. We have a new person, I think, right? Who is mm-hmm. Ark? Because I don't think I know that mm-hmm. name. So welcome, mm-hmm. Ark. We have the Greek and another one, I think, who is new, James Mueller, uh, which I believe was our first guest, actually, yeah, for I think he this week. He might have been the first. And, and mm-hmm. those are our full credit winners, the people who not only guessed the event or identified the event, but also explained what the clue was. And then we have... Uh, even more, uh, you know, I wouldn't call them partial credit winners. I'd call them winners, just not fullest credit winners. <laughs> so these partial, well, whatever you just called them, <laughs> partial but not partial, winners but not winners. Uh, we have Ben Hallert, Cyrus, Peter McMalley, Christian Lowe, Julian Martin, and that's it. All right. So, yeah, that's quite a few people who I guess got the right answer, but maybe for not, didn't get the reference perhaps. So, some of them incorrectly identified the reference. Some of them didn't attempt to identify the reference, and that's okay. I didn't mm. specify it as a requirement, but, you know, I got to give fullest credit to Ark the Greek and, and James Mueller. So that clue was, what's that in Pirate Ninjas? And at first, Actually, I myself, I'd heard of it, but I couldn't remember where it was from somehow. Um, Mm -hmm. But you told me and I was like, oh, yeah, Um, how quickly I forget. So, yeah, what is that about? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's talk about the clue real quick. A pirate ninja is a special unit invented by Mark Watney in The Martian. Um, He was doing calculations, looking at how long he could charge his batteries versus spend that energy driving uh, and also spend the energy uh, heating, heating his environment while he drove from one site to another across the face of Mars. So he was looking at kilowatt hours per soul and you know, it's hours. Actually, Dennis had a really interesting point. A kilowatt includes a time component. Kilowatt hours includes two time components. Kilowatt hour per soul includes three time units, right? (laughs) Um, but, you know, he broke it up by soul because he was having to alternate between driving and, and charging. And so he got tired of using the unit kilowatt hour per soul. So he decided to rename it. And he, of course, chose the much more intuitive and easy to say pirate ninja unit. Um, so <laughs> this week's uh, spaceflight event has a lot to do with getting measurement units correct. So 
This week in spaceflight history is the 23rd of September, 1999. It was the failure of the Mars Climate Orbiter. So let's, before we talk about the failure, let's go back in history a little bit. Mars Observer launched in 1992. Um, unfortunately, it was lost just three days before orbital insertion around Mars uh, due to a leaky uh, fuel check valve that resulted in fuel vapor being let into the feed line, and then the feed line exploded uh, right after the engine started up for the last trajectory correction maneuver. That's another failure <laughs> we don't have time to get mm. into, but Mars Observer exploded right at the beginning of the assembly of ISS. And NASA is seeing ISS get more expensive. They're seeing uh, no scientific return on the investment for Mars Orbiter. And all these things kind of drive them to want to fly some low-cost spacecraft. And so the Mars Exploration Program uh, includes a lot of famous names, including uh, the Mars Exploration Rovers and, you know, all, all the Mars operations that are happening right now. But the Mars Exploration Program began with two very low-cost spacecraft, the Mars Global Surveyor, as well as Mars Surveyor 98. And technically, Mars Surveyor 98 is two spacecraft, but they're, they're two different launches. Um, both of these guys um, cost any, between half and two-thirds of the cost of Mars Odyssey, which was the f mission that flew right after Mars Surveyor 98. Um, so they are each under a uh, thousand kilograms. Actually, um, Mars Global Surveyor was just a hair over a thousand kilograms, but you know, these are, are light and cheap vehicles and it's, it's just what the doctor ordered, right? So Mars Climate Orbiter famously did not successfully enter orbit of Mars. Here, here's what happened. And th this is so interesting because I, I think everybody knows that there was a, a unit mix-up that caused um, a trajectory issue. But I, I've always heard about this talked about in such ambiguous terms that I, I didn't really understand what happened. I think the assumption that most people mm. make is that they fired the engine for too long or they didn't fire the engine for long enough, which seems silly, right? Because you've already done three TCMs, uh, four TCMs, TCMs on the way to Mars, and you should have figured this out by then. How did you fail trying to get into orbit? This is this is a lot of fun. Here's what actually happened. Uh, Mars Climate Orbiter uh, had momentum wheels, and, and we'll talk more about momentum wheels next week. Spoiler alert, but mm -hmm. uh, it uses uh, reaction wheels uh, to point it in the right direction. And of course, reaction wheels have to be desaturated uh, every now and again, because they spin up, they get to the point where your motor can no longer produce torque going at that speed. And so they're, they're not helpful. And there's also something subtle in physics, I believe, where the amount of energy that you put into spinning something up is directly proportional to the speed it was going at to begin with. It's not like adding three, uh, RPMs results in a certain amount of turning of the spacecraft. If the, you know, if the wheel's going fast, you get less than less than you would if it was standing still. In any event, they desaturate these guys using uh, an AMD event. It's an angular momentum desaturation event where they fire up the uh, the thrusters to allow them to de-spin the uh, the momentum wheels 
um, and get them back down to more reasonable uh, spin rates. What ended up happening though, was they had to do AMDs 10 to 14 times more than they expected to be doing them. That's due to the way that the vehicle was built. It had a single solar array instead of two paired solar arrays. And so the solar pressure actually added rotational uh, momentum to the vehicle. It wasn't something that was foreseen, but it wasn't something that should have been a problem. However, doing an AMD, a, a desaturation, ended up being more complex than you might think. Desaturation events should be non-propulsive. You should be able to rotate the vehicle or, or fire up these rotational thrusters uh, while you're you know, de-spinning the wheel, and you should wind up in exactly the same place that you started. Unfortunately, the real world is more complex. And if those thrusters aren't perfectly centered on your center of mass, you're not going to get a perfect rotational push out of these thrusters. Instead, you'll get rotation with a little bit of translation. Um, people who have played Kerbal Space Program should be fairly familiar uh, with how hard it can be to dock a vehicle with another vehicle in orbit if your uh, thrusters are very asymmetric. Well, Mars Climate Orbiter didn't have very asymmetric thrusters. They were quite symmetric, but they weren't perfectly symmetric. That's just because you freeze the design of where you're placing your thrusters before you freeze the design of everything else. And so, you know, you're going to have your center of mass move a little bit. Shouldn't be that big of a problem. You can account for it in software. Every time you do a AMD, uh, angular momentum desaturation, you count how long you've been firing those thrusters and you go, okay, I just moved my vehicle X number of centimeters to the left. Well, you know, actually it's uh, centimeters per second. You, I added this much rate to the left. That shouldn't be that hard. But in this case, it became hard. <laughs> um, they, they accounted for this translation, this, this residual translation uh, on the ground. The spacecraft didn't have to keep track of it. And in the second half of the mission, uh, they were planning on implementing a new trajectory estimation uh, method uh, that would account for these small forces. It was actually called the small forces mod model. And uh, Lockheed was going to be providing a hardware, a piece of hardware, like a computer that could do um, trajectory calculations and take into account these small forces. Unfortunately, Lockheed took longer than expected to actually deliver their hardware um, because they had a bug in, in their software that they had to go fix. And so um, when they started accounting for these small forces, um, JPL actually did all of the work um, estimating these small forces and doing all the trajectory um, estimation up until April 1998, when uh, at that point Lockheed was able to deliver and they were able to switch over. Now, JPL's estimations were pretty accurate and no issues were encountered. However, Lockheed's hardware is where this famous uh, units issue comes up. They mm. reported the acceleration due to AMD uh, events in pounds of force instead of newtons, which is what the contract called for. The difference is a factor of 4.45. That seems like a lot. In mm -hmm. reality, it's not a lot because the forces that we're talking about are tiny. It's just a little bit of residual force left over by a periodic AMD, right? It's not big enough for anybody to really notice right off the bat. 
Now, if you were looking at the values that were coming out of the Lockheed hardware and looking at the values that JPL had been producing, you would notice that they were more than four times off, but that wasn't the way that this worked. Um, there were different teams accruing data in different ways and doing calculations in different ways and nobody noticed it. And so this error was compounding. Every time they did an AMD, the actual position of the vehicle wound up being a little bit off from the calculated position of the vehicle. Well, you correct the calculated position of the vehicle by doing real world measurements, right? Well, if it's just a tiny little error, it gets included it gets written off as being part of the error of actually measuring where the vehicle is. And unfortunately, the measurement error bars gets bigger and bigger the closer you get to Mars. Most of the real world measurements that kind of the ground truth, or I guess the space truth that they're collecting, uh, is done with a Doppler, Doppler rate measurement, right? You, mm-hmm. you listen to the, the radio signals coming from the vehicle and they're going to be slightly off the frequency that you expect them to be. And that shift is due to Doppler, which tells you the speed at which the vehicle is moving away from you. Well, if the vehicle is moving directly away from you, it's there's no cosine error right it's a hundred percent of the doppler shift is a is the speed of the vehicle moving away from you but once you get up to mars you don't care about the speed of the vehicle moving away from you you care about the speed of the vehicle moving towards mars that's way more important because it's the the direction that the vehicle is traveling right relative to the sun it Mm -hmm. it becomes perpendicular to the direction that you're looking at it from earth as well as uh, collinear with its uh, heading angle to Mars. So anyway, the the more perpendicular the velocity component that you want to measure is, the more cosine error you encounter. And so as those cosine errors are increasing, it's being able to hide this error from the software or from from the um from the AMD better and better. And basically they wound up with the vehicle closer to Mars than they thought and and the vehicle burns up in Mars's atmosphere. However, there there's a compounding issue that happens here and it's an organizational issue. They actually did see um the error of their measurements increasing and increasing and increasing. And measuring error is really difficult, right? Because if you're measuring an unknown, how do you know how close you are to it? Well, their their error bars were at minimum 30 kilometers wide, right? They didn't know if the vehicle was uh, 150 was going to pass within 150 kilometers of Mars of Mars's surface or 180 kilometers of the Mar- of the Martian surface. That's a wide error. 30 kilometers ain't great. At this point in the mission, the error should have been 10 kilometers, but it gets worse. Depending on how you actually calculate uncertainty, their error bars might have been as wide as a hundred kilometers. And the, this 30 kilometer error was early enough in the mission that they had time to actually execute a fifth TCM. They had done four trajectory correction maneuvers on the way to Mars. They had planned for a fifth one just in case. Um, they did a big consultation with a bunch of different people, a, a big teleconference. And some of the people who left that teleconference said, well, my impression when I hung up was that we were going to do TCM5. They never did TCM5. This was a leadership error. Unfortunately, um, they ended up actually adopting the uh the point of view or the the attitude that if you see an a, a problem you have to go prove that there's a problem instead of the attitude which is 
you see that there's a problem. Let me go prove that there's not a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know, it's, it's one of these things where, you know, the, the hardware issue wouldn't have been a problem if they would have noticed it, not noticing the hardware problem wouldn't have been an issue if they would have paid closer attention, uh, to what their error bars look like. You know, there are all these things that could have told them, Hey, something's wrong. And there were things that told them they were wrong and they knew that something was wrong and they, they still didn't fix it. Um, and we lost a second Mars, uh, mission in a row. Well, it, let me jump forward in the future a little bit. There was a third <laughs> failure. Uh, <laughs> Mars Polar Lander uh, arrived two months after Mars, Mars Climate Orbiter. It also uh, was not a successful mission. I looked into to the failure. I actually don't want to talk about it because I'd like to save it for a future um, This Week in Space Flight History. Uh, spoiler alert, it's not going to be a This Week in Space Flight History in two months. <laughs> I think that might be a little... Uh, a little easy. Um, but Mars Polar Lander, which launched on the same vehicle, also failed. It sucks. Um, we mm. make mistakes. It, it can really quickly get depressing to see uh, mistakes compounding and causing vehicle loss. But, you know, ultimately they just, they teach us how to, how to move on and be more successful in the future. And boy, have we taken these mistakes and run with them. Uh, you know, uh, mm. Mars missions are very successful these days and it, it makes me happy. That was so much more like than I, you know, like I said, I only knew that kind of top level vague, you know, mm-hmm. mismatch of units led to a loss of vehicle. But yeah, that's just so much more interesting. Yeah, me too, because I didn't know the details of it. Um, I, I just knew that there was, you know, this conversion error with the units or whatever and something, something. But I didn't know it was quite like that. And I think I kind of got the idea of what you were saying, but I'm, I'm just trying to visualize it in, in my head. So I'm going to have to read up more on this whole saga because uh, it sounds like an interesting one. And I have a fantastic resource for you to do so. Linked in the show notes is going to be an article on uh, IEEE Spectrum, one of the, one of uh, IEEE's publications. Uh, the article is from 1999, and it's uh, very, very good. It is... Um, incredibly cynical um i mean it, it's <laughs> it's it's like a hard-hitting kind of kind of uh, article and what's really cool is uh, ieee was doing their own investigation into mars climate orbiter before the failure uh, as well as before the um the the official um uh what's it called the f- uh, failure report right. uh, the the mishap investigation incident. report the incident report yeah yeah, this was a mishap, not an incident. Um. <laughs> cool. So that was a much better explanation of this, you know, famous error um, than <laughs> I have you. ever heard before. So good job. Oh, um, thank you. I appreciate so that. So, Dennis, do you got a clue for next week? Yes, I do. Next week in 2003, a bureaucratic Voltron. Yep. That's <laughs> a really good clue. I love that one. <laughs> uh, bureaucratic Voltron. I feel like that works on several levels. I'm not sure if it actually does, but yeah, it's really good. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> yeah. A bureaucratic Voltron in 2003. All right. Well, if you think you know what that's about, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Good luck, everyone. All right. So now let's do upcoming spaceflight events. Uh, we got three launches and another event. So what's the first actual launch, Dennis? First up on September 26th, we've got the Delta IV Heavy uh, Enroll 44 launch. And so you might remember this from a few weeks ago. This was the one with the uh, uh, rather dramatic Dramatic uh, T minus three second abort, and so it's going to be another shot at this uh, ULA Delta IV taking this, you know, classified spy satellite for the U.S. NRO uh, National Reconnaissance Office. Keep an eye out for this again on September 26th, uh, with a window from 0401 to 05. 
35 UTC. Uh, that's basically midnight to around 1.30 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time, and it will be flying out of uh, Slick 37B at the Cape. After that, we have a Soyuz flying Gonuts M. So this is uh, specifically Gonuts M uh, 17, 18, and 19. And uh, I think people should be pretty familiar with this uh, this communication satellite constellation. Um, there are three Gonetses M, Go Gonets M's, Gonetses M, uh, three of those guys, and then a bunch of international ride shares. So uh, on board will be uh, four more Lemur twos, uh, or four lemur twos i believe so far we've only seen lemur ones fly uh, something called lacuna sat and i i don't know lacuna is a is a fun word in my head uh, as well as uh um some ice eyes uh a salsat uh some keplers uh descartes a norb i mean like just fantastic satellite names <laughs> it's fantastic <laughs> So, you know, most mostly uh, commercial Earth observation kind of satellites. Um, so this whole uh, cluster, this whole gang of satellites, um, a flock of satellites is going to be flying on a Soyuz in the uh, one uh, the two one B configuration uh, with a frigate upper stage on September 28th. It looks like it's an instantaneous launch window at 11, uh, 1120 hours GMT. That's uh, 730, 720 AM uh, Eastern time. And then the next launch is on September 29th slash 30th, depending on where you are. Um, and that is the launch of an Antares and that is NG 14. So that's the designation there. And this is the, 14th cargo delivery to the International Space Station. So that is launching from Wallops, uh, as it always does, from Pad 0A. I don't think I had ever taken notice of the names of the pads, yeah, but yeah, that's here. a cool <laughs> 0A. And so that's flying in the 230 configuration, and it has two RD-181 first stage engines in a Castor 30XL second stage. So Right, because this is the extended Cygnus. So yeah, this is the extended Cygnus uh, with that um, extended Castor upper stage, which is really cool. Um, we don't talk much about the Castor, but um, I think it's a mm. pretty neat little engine. Oh yeah, it's a it's a workhorse. And this uh, this launch was actually uh, delayed from both August and September, but moved forward from the second of October to the 29th or 30th of this month. So I guess they were just kind of just trying to dial that in. Mm -hmm. So did you see what the? Because you know they name every Cygnus. Did you see what this one's named? Uh, no. What's this one called? It's the mm. SS Kalpanachala, which is fantastic. Chala was one of the astronauts killed on. Challenger, I believe. I think she was on uh, Columbia. You're right. She was on Columbia because she didn't make it to space. She would have been the first, the first Indian woman in space. Mm -hmm. um, and it's it's fantastic to get to honor her. Yeah, Columbia. She made it to space. She just didn't return. Did I say? Oh, Columbia. Not I think you said she. Yeah, I think I think yeah. You said that she would have been the first. Right. Indian yeah. Yeah. Descent. Um, but she was right. the first. who made it to space. Yeah. So she did make it to space. You're right. Yes. There you go. Uh, the launch time for that is a 0 to 26 UTC on the 30th, um, which would put it at sometime late at night in the States. So, yeah, just uh, be cognizant of that. And that is an instantaneous launch window, which I guess they all are um, for these types of missions. So, yeah, tune in to watch that. And then uh, finally, we have a um, an event on Sunday. Um, it's not something you can watch, but it's something you can keep in mind. Uh, on September 27th, we have... Uh, 
Parker Solar Probe's perihelion number six. And so this will be the first of two uh, even closer ones uh, at 14.2 gigameters or, um, you know, 14 million 200,000 kilometers. Uh, and so um, this is about halfway to its uh, closest planned perihelia of about seven uh, gigameters, but it's um, also significantly closer than the first uh, handful of perihelia. So uh, mm -hmm. something to you know just keep uh, keep an eye out for more data, more hopefully pretty pictures and all sorts of good stuff coming from that mission. All right, so those are your upcoming spaceflight events. Cool. All right, so let's uh, deorbit the show then, and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen, or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can join our Discord for free during social distancing. Check our Twitter or Reddit for links or Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, that is it, and we will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.